Welcome to Disrupting Japan. Straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. EdTech startups in Japan need to overcome some significant barriers in order to succeed. Oh, it's not that people really want those barriers there. There's a huge desire for change and innovation. In fact, there is an almost universal agreement that the way Japanese children are taught needs to be modernized and reformed. The hard part, however, is getting people to actually agree on what concrete changes need to be made. Well, today, we sit down with Kohei Kuboyama, the founder of OK. And Kohei lays out his strategy for getting edtech startup products approved by and used in Japanese schools. He also tells the story of how Oke evolved from a simple YouTube curation site into an integrated testing and tutoring platform. We also talk about Kohei's surprising decision to leave his fast track career at the Ministry of Finance to start a startup. The key steps to selling to Japanese high schools and cram schools, and we dive deep into the Japanese philosophy of education and instruction, how it differs from that in the West, and exactly how Japanese high schools and, and even cram schools are starting to change. But you know, Kohei tells that story much better than I can. So let's get right to the interview. We're sitting here with Kohei Kuboyama, the founder of OK and maker of Dr. OK, who's helping high school students learn. So thanks for sitting down with us. Thanks for having me. <laughs> you know, I, I talked really briefly about what OK does, but I'm sure you can explain it much better than I can. Yeah, so our mission is to make a world where every person learns actively, and every person can make their lives fulfilled. We are providing two products. One is for high school students, and one is for schools. One product is called Oke. This is actually an app for high school students, and they can use our app for free. So, so the basic concept of Oke is to let high school students learn whatever they want to, whenever they want to, and wherever they live. The basic concept is the search engine. So there are a lot of useful and helpful learning information and contents on Google and YouTube, for example. Mm -hmm. But there are many kinds of information there, game and contents of music and so on. We are making the search engine under the platform focusing on learning. So how does it work? So I think like at first, you, you originally started just curating videos, mm -hmm. right? And recommending yeah. educational videos. But OK is developed into a much deeper platform than that. As you mentioned, the main contents are the videos, especially on YouTube. So we are curating many lecture videos on YouTube. And every high school student can search, for example, like uh, if they cannot understand the concept of some fields of math, they can search that field's name. So they can search by levels and the fields and the units they want to learn. And you also have like quizzes and tests built into the app as well, right? Uh, we are providing quizzes for schools, 
but maybe in future oh, okay. we are incorporating that in the app. So who are your customers really? Are they cram schools? Are they public schools? Are they parents? Who who pays for OK? Yeah, actually OK is free for high school students. And we are not monetizing that. But second product we are providing is called Dr. OK. This is to be service and for cram schools and schools. So the basic concept of Dr. OK is to let teachers provide tests with their students. So the cram school product is not something the students use. It's something only the teachers use. Yes. So how do the two products work together? Yeah, we are combining two products. We are incorporating the OK's contents into the Dr. OK, which means students answer the questions on Dr. Oke, and after that, there are many like details, answers, and below that, we are incorporating videos and the articles, uh, which is explaining the question. Okay, so a, a student can take a test, and then based on the results of the test, Oke would recommend you should watch these videos to better understand the points you missed, and that, that kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Before we get into the, the marketing and the go-to-market, I want to talk a little bit about you and your background. My background. So you graduated from the University of Tokyo. Yeah. You went into the Ministry of Finance, yeah. which is just a very typical, successful <laughs> path, right? I mean, it's... it's. Um, I know what you mean. Right, right. I mean, I'm sure your parents were very happy with that. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But after about three and a half years, you decided to leave the ministry. So why? What made you decide to, to move out of that really great career path? Yeah. So, so I graduated from the University of Tokyo and I went to the Ministry of Finance because I wanted to make a direct impact on a society. When I was 22, I was thinking of how I can make an impact. And I, yes, I have to become a bureaucrat in Japan. And I went into that. But after three and a half years, the Ministry of Finance provided me the chance to study abroad. And I went to the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA, to get the MBA. And during the MBA years, so I had to do an intern, but I was sponsored by the government, so I couldn't get income in the US. So I applied for many major companies in the US, but I was rejected because I couldn't take the money from the companies. It, they didn't want you to work for free. Yeah, yeah. it wasn't part of the program. <laughs> yeah, it, it's illegal. So I had to do the intern in the startup. Oh. <laughs> and then I jumped into the startup world and I was excited. This is very fun. And maybe I can make a direct impact on a society from startups. Well, what kind of startup were you interning with at, from UCLA? Was it an ed tech startup? No, it's actually AI startup. So it's like a motion analytics. But when I was working in that startup, I wanted to do myself. And also, I was born and grew up in a rural area in Japan, and I went to Tokyo in a university. So I felt like educational regional differences in Japan. 
So that's the deep problem I felt. So when I was thinking of making my own startup, I felt very deep a problem in education in Japan. So, okay, I will do that and I make my own startup. So, so after you got your MBA, you came back to Japan and started a startup? Yes. And was the Ministry of Finance upset <laughs> about that? Or? Yeah. So I had to go back to the Ministry of Finance, of course, because so the ministry paid my tuition yeah. of the MBA. So I had to pay back all the, all the tuition to the government. So that, that, that's very tough. But yes, so I paid back all the fee wow. to the government. And also, like, my boss, like, scolded me, <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah. Actually, it was the start of the coronavirus, the spring of 2020. So actually, the day when we launched the website... The prime minister of Japan decided to close all the schools in Japan. So we are introduced by many articles and media. So it was a good timing and I, I was able to decide to leave the ministry. I mean, that's really exciting, but it's very unusual in Japan for someone <laughs> to leave. Well, no, it, I, I find it fascinating because it, it comes in wave. The first wave was kind of like, so when I started my first startup in the 90s here, only people who had to start startups started startups, <laughs> really, <laughs> if you know what I mean. But, but then it was like students from like really good universities from Todai and Waseda started starting startups. And then more people from like mid-career at really good companies started starting startups. Um, but it's still very unusual to see someone from one of the large ministries starting a company so it's it's um what was the reaction from like your colleagues mm. so i didn't know the person who left the ministry of finance to start their own startup directory so there are many people to for example go to the consulting companies and oh. then do their own startups but this is like a irregular case <laughs> to like start my own startup directory after leaving the ministry. So the working in consulting companies, it's kind of similar to working on the Ministry of Finance. So it's like a negotiating and uh, the managing many counterparts. But this is like, a, I, I don't know how I can say that, but the startups and the ministry is kind of like a opposites, opposites. So it was interesting, but many colleagues cheered me. Really? <laughs> okay, so they couldn't s stop me. <laughs> and I think they cheered me because many colleagues, in including me, didn't know the world of startup. So we didn't know how to make the companies bigger. Yeah, so they just cheered me. <laughs> that's, that's great. It's great to hear they're supportive. Yes. That, that's, that's awesome. That wasn't the reaction I was expecting. <laughs> <laughs> what, what did your parents think? Uh, so, finally, they cheered me, but first, they couldn't understand what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> but when I was a child, I was stubborn. <laughs> and my, my parents knew that, of course, so they were supportive as well. That's great. Finally. <laughs> Eventually. Eventually. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, like it just seems like your timing was was really good. 
And, you know, cram schools are a really good test market for ed tech in Japan. They're private. They really care about results. They're, they're measured really strictly and publicly on, on how many students they get into good universities. So was it easy to sell to cram schools? Do you find they were ready to try to new technology or was it pretty difficult to get them to adopt? Even for cram schools, it is tough to introduce new technology in their usual work because they are teaching by themselves. Many teachers in cram schools want to teach by themselves. So it is kind of difficult to replace all their work to some technology. So, so each, like each teacher wants to set up their own system and their own. Yeah, they want to, their students, like it's a concept and a, like math and equation and something like that. So they usually don't want to replace that teaching part into the technology. Oh, so they just enjoy that part of the job. Yes. Oh, interestingly, well, yes. I can, no, that makes sense, actually. I mean, that's <laughs> really teaching, right? Yes. So, so, so they love the communication with their students. All right. So I, I find it interesting. So ed tech is one of those areas where your customer and your user are very, very different. So, and then this is just a perfect example of that. So the students might really want to learn online, but the customer doesn't. They, they love that part of it. So what value did your customer see in the product? The biggest one is to get results. We are not replacing the teaching part of the teachers, but we are aiming for like the arm of the teachers. So the teachers are using our product to make their communication with the students much more variable. The problem of the teachers is they cannot understand what students actually understand. So, so for example, when I was a high school student, if I was asked by my teacher, okay, so do you understand this? And I will answer yes. Yes, yeah, of course. <laughs> right. But, but when I answered my, like, for example, quiz, I couldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so there is a large information asymmetry between the teachers and students. So the teachers are using our test tool to know the status of the students. Okay, and I guess it would make sense from the student point of view too, because after they, they take the test, they get directed to additional videos and information to help them improve. Yeah. So the teachers still get to teach? Yes, based on the result of yeah. the tests. Okay, I see how that would work really well. Do you also sell it to regular schools? Yeah, in future, we are aiming for that. But now we are targeting the Chrome schools because the teachers of Chrome schools can decide much more quickly than the regular schools. It seems that selling to high schools, junior high schools, even universities in Japan is, is difficult. <laughs> yes. Why is that? The regular schools deciding how to use their budget once a year. So the timing when we can sell a product is once a year. So it's kind of difficult. But in Chrome schools, so they are always searching helpful products and useful products. Oh. So it's much more easy to communicate with the teachers on Chrome schools. So when you're, when you're selling to 
public schools or regular schools, does each school have the ability to decide on on tools like okay for themselves, or is that decided at like a a city level or county level? There are two types of schools. One is the private school, and one is the public school. And in private schools, so each school can make the decision、uh, by themselves. But in public school, if my understanding is correct, the city or like a, the county level should decide whether each school in their community introduces some product or not. And does that make it harder to sell or easier to sell? I think if my company becomes bigger, it's easy to sell a product to schools, maybe because there will be some branding. But difficult part is. That the teachers are in every school, of course, but the people in the city or like at the prefecture, they are not teaching in like actual schools.、Right. So I think there is some gap between like what they are focusing on and what they think and what actual teachers think. So I think it's much more tough. Yeah, especially as a small startup. Yes. In general, though, for the ed tech market in Japan, does new product adoption? Do we often see products like first being used in cram schools and then then moving to private schools and then to public? Is that a normal path? Yeah, I think so. For small startups, it's the normal path. But there are some companies who start with regular schools, then after to cram schools, but. They are big companies.、Oh, okay, <laughs> so they're the ones that already have the relationships. With yes, the, yeah,、okay. exactly. That makes sense. So, looking forward, do you see this platform as something that can not replace cram schools, but that students could use instead of a cram school?、Mm. Yes. So, our mission is to enable. Every person to learn actively, which means they are not depending on cram schools, for example.、Yeah. But the thing is, the teachers have much value on students' learning. So the value of cram schools is not to teach some contents to their students, but to provide the atmosphere of learning and to communicate with their students. For example. There are some students who can learn by themselves in their house, for example. But other students cannot concentrate on their learning at their own rooms. But if they go to the cram schools, they can focus on their learning, even without any lectures from the teachers. So, I think the value of cram schools is changing from teaching to something like that. Well, actually, that's a really good point. I'm wondering to how cram schools are changing in Japan because over the last, certainly the last ten years, there's been a lot of discussion about how Japanese education needs to change to be more creative, to teach students critical thinking, to be less test oriented and and less you know yes no type thinking. But cram schools are very much focused on the <laughs> yes no this is the answer. I mean that's fine. That's their job is to get students into universities, right? So so 
Are they changing? Can they change? Hmm. They are actually changing, and we want to accelerate the change. This is kind of my personal thought, but I think we cannot divide like the test-oriented education and critical thinking and much more like meaningful education. I think they are combined. Even if we have to do test-oriented education, but we can manage how to teach the type of learning. So the learning of Chrome schools is usually knowledge-based, but we can change how to learn to make them useful for their lives. Oh, I see. So, so you're still, the idea is you're still teaching the same subjects, you're still teaching the same topics, but they're being taught in a different way. Yes. They're being taught in, you're teaching mathematics in a way that, that helps students learn to think critically and question why things are this way. Yeah. The current learning is kind of too passive, but I think we can change the way and let the students learn more actively. So what, what kind of techniques are, are useful for that? How is OK enabling that kind of, that kind of creativity and a new way of, of teaching? Yeah, that's a very difficult question, and I'm always looking for that. But one thing we are thinking of is to let the students choose by themselves. The biggest part of that type of learning is to set their goals by themselves. If the teachers decide their goals, maybe the learning toward that goal will be passive. But whether their goals are short or long, if their goals are set by themselves, they can learn actively. And the teachers only support their students to head for the goal. Well, that makes sense. And that, that's, that's something we would definitely need a technology platform to allow that kind of independent inquiry and independent study. You know, what about... Like, everyone talks about the importance of students learning critical thinking and the way students learn, but I, I think, I wish people would talk more about adult education and, like, actual lifetime learning. Yeah, but it's difficult to penetrate that kind of service to actual adults. Well, but maybe... If students get used to learning themselves when they're in high school, they'll continue that behavior yes. as they get older. Yeah, that's actually our mission is that, yes. One of the biggest problems of Japan's education is to set the goal to pass the entrance exam of the universities. Yeah. So students stop learning after they finish the entrance <laughs> yeah. exam. Right, so <laughs> Check. Yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so we are aiming for changing that. And yeah, like you said, the key to that is getting the students to feel they're in control of their own learning path. Mm, yeah. We would like to change the way university students and adults learn. But as a first step, we started out with high school students. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the high school students will eventually become adults. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. You mentioned before that your colleagues at the Ministry of Finance, many of them had never even heard of a, a startup. Like, what is it? But I find, especially in the last three or four years, 
the Japanese government's been playing a very active and very visible role in supporting startups. What do you think that the government's doing well, and, and what do you think like the government role should be in supporting startup ecosystems? Because you've been sort of on both sides of this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so in my opinion, the role the government should play to support the startups is to provide risk money. So actually funding the startups. Yes. I'm not sure if the policy to increase the number of entrepreneurs works well. Like I decided to become an entrepreneur internally. So for example, like if there's some education to become an entrepreneur, I don't know this is a good way to become an entrepreneur or not. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I don't have an answer either. Mm. I, I, um, but because I think a lot of the programs, like this year, Medi is spending a lot of money sending uh, young Japanese overseas to Silicon Valley and to New York and Boston and London and j just to be exposed to startup culture. I understand the theory of that. And I mean, and it worked for you, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So we'll, we'll see. I, I think there's, there, there's a lot of people trying a lot of different kinds of things. But yeah, how to get that mind shift is, I have no idea. I think one good thing I saw in high school students is there are some students who is thinking of becoming an entrepreneur in their high schools. So I think this is a very good thing because people are able to know what an entrepreneur is and what is to make their own companies. I think this is a good thing for students. But another big problem is I said like the government should provide risk money to the startups, but the thing is the government cannot provide money to the startups directly. They are providing their money to finance institutions. So I'm not sure there are the people who can judge which startups yeah. will grow or not. Yeah, it, it is, there's a lot of government money flowing into startups. As you mentioned, it's kind of indirectly, but they're, they're, they're funding university startups. Yes. There's quasi-government funds like you know, INCJ and Cool Japan Fund. Usually it's in partnership with private VCs or things like that. What about the government working with startups? This, this is something that, that everyone I talk to on both sides thinks is a great idea and wants to do and, and wants to use like this startup creativity to help solve government challenges and better communicate. But no one seems to be able to make it work. Yeah. <laughs> That's very tough. <laughs> in my opinion, like the decision speed is like opposite uh, <laughs> the government and the startups. So I think that would not work. For example, so there are many types of subsidies and I was looking for that, but there are a lot of documents we have to provide to the government and I, <laughs> I, I, I gave up. <laughs> I was working in the ministry, but I gave up. <laughs> No, no, I couldn't spend much time on such kind of like a paper stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I think one good point is to get some like branding from the government. 
if a small startup can collaborate with the government, it makes it much easier to like sell the products. Yeah, other companies have, have more confidence in working with them. Yeah. And so I, th- I, I think the strongest impact of like the J Startups program from, from talking with like、uh, the founders who are in there is exactly that. It's the credibility of the government saying, well, we've selected these startups and we think they're interesting and, and worth looking at. And that does make it much easier to do business with Japanese companies. Yeah, so they are weak with authorities. <laughs> well, I mean, well, I mean, it is, it's a new thing for a lot of, for everyone. So I think that that extra bit of like confidence helps.、Mm-hmm. Yes. Do you still keep in touch with some of your former colleagues? Are more and more of them learning about startups? Yeah, so in the ministry, so we, so we have very strong relationship with the colleagues who. Joined the same time. Right. When I was 22, I jumped into the government and many students joined at the same time. And yeah, they are good friends and we are like drinking sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> for example. Yeah, but I'm in the education field. So we are not discussing our business. Yeah, just like a keeping good relationship. Okay. Well, listen, Koi, before I let you go, I want to ask you what I call my magic wand question. And that is if I gave you a magic wand and I told you that you could change one thing about Japan, anything at all, the education system, the way people think about learning, people's attitudes towards risk, anything at all to make it better for startups and innovation in Japan. What would you change? I'm sure this is difficult to change, but what I think is to change the atmosphere where people criticize people who are not following the communities. In Japan, I think this is actually changing, but I think one possible thing which is prohibiting the people's innovation is the fear to fail. Why do you think there's such a strong fear of failure in Japan?、Mm. One thing is people don't have confidence in themselves. Yeah, this is kind of related to education, but so people do not choose their own goals by themselves. They are walking on the path which is decided by others. So that's one possible reason not to. Feel confidence in themselves. So that goes back to your original comment about people getting criticized for doing something that's different.、Mm. So it, it, you feel like even, even starting it, people will get criticized. Although, well, you were saying your, your colleagues and everyone were very supportive of you. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. So maybe the problem is. Not to criticize the people who are not following the path, but to feel the fear to jump out of the path. I, I didn't feel such types of fear when I decided to jump into the startup, but I know many people in Japan feel like much fear to jump out of their comfort zone. But it seems to be getting better. We, we seem to have more and more people leaving large companies to start. Startups and even government, as you mentioned, like indirectly、mm-hmm. 
taking a few steps first, but then going.、Mm, yeah, I think young people are actually doing that. They go to the big companies just after graduation from the universities, and maybe they work three or four years, then move to startups and other companies. Yeah, I think the thing is changing. I do think it has so much to do with what you were saying about education, about how for the first seventeen, eighteen years of children's lives, everything's decided for them. This is your goal, and you get the answer on this test, and your goal is to pass this test and pass this test and get into use this, this this university, and then you'll get this job and you'll be fine. And, and maybe like after they get that job, more people start thinking like, wait a minute, yes. <laughs> Oh, is this what I wanted to do? <laughs> yes, and that's one reason I started my own startup. But I guess maybe with with like you're saying, like even with high school students learning about startups and thinking about startups, if there are more teaching in the way that OK is teaching, which is more self directed, we might see a big change in that in the coming five ten years. Yeah, we are. Creating that wave now. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, listen, Kohei. Thanks so much for sitting down. Thank you for having me. And we're back. Founders like Kohei, founders who move from government to startups, are still quite rare. But every year, we're seeing more and more people from enterprise and academia leave to join the startup world. And this movement will no doubt eventually reach government bureaucrats as well. But even when it does, we'll only be halfway to where we really need to be. The true value, the real innovation, comes when there is a revolving door, when people go to the startups, bringing their enterprise and government knowledge and experience with them, and then come back. Bringing in new ideas and startup experiences with them, this not only makes enterprises and government more innovative and responsive, but it makes it easier for startups and enterprises and governments to work together. It's a virtuous cycle that benefits everyone. But you know, after talking with Kohei, I, I'm I'm left wondering. How much the Japanese education system will really be able to change? I mean, at least how much it will be able to change from the inside. Despite the near universal agreement that that education needs to move away from rote learning and test-based instruction, cram schools in Japan are a booming business. And and Japanese cram schools exist for one reason and one reason only, to teach students how to pass university entrance exams. <laughs> Kohei's key insight here, however, is the importance of getting students to set their own learning goals and strategies. If students learn how to learn. They're more likely to become lifetime learners, and that, perhaps more than anything else, is what leads to creativity, innovation, and positive change. So maybe Japanese schools won't be able to change on their own, but just maybe, the people who will change them might be the students themselves.
If you want to talk more about lifetime learning or selling to Japanese schools, Koei and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash show 212 and let's talk about it. And hey, if you enjoy Disrupting Japan, share a link online or just tell people about it. Disrupting Japan is free forever and letting people know about it is the absolute best way you can support the podcast. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.